From Covenant Shreveport, this is Origins of the Faith. Chapter 14, The Sage of the Ages, Augustine of Hippo. So chapter 14, and this chapter is all about Augustine or Augustine. I I think I go back and forth. I usually go with Augustine. Augustine, Augustine. Yeah, I don't know why. (laughs) I I literally... You you call him Augustine, I'll call him Augustine. (laughs) That won't be confusing to people at all. (laughs) Not at all. Um, You know, uh, so Augustine is a central figure not only here in like the ancient church, but he's a central figure even today because a lot of people look at Augustine as being the sort of father of Western Christianity and really being the one on whom a lot of, a lot of the like thinking and doing of the church is based, Mm -hmm. particularly as we get into the medieval period. Um, and he really is a fascinating figure, um, and we have so much of his writing still today. Like, so that's a that's a piece in all of this with Augustine as well. Is we we still have a great bulk of what he wrote during his time, and um, and in particular, I mean, two of his works are still, I think, bestsellers today. And those are his his book called Confessions, mm-hmm. and his book called The City of God, and so. His story is is just kind of remarkable because he is born in a divided home to a father who is not a Christian and and yet a mother who is not only a Christian but a like zealous Christian, right. like a fervent Christian. And her name's Monica. There's actually a a profile of her in this chapter. And you know, in the Roman Catholic Church today, even I mean Saint Monica, as she's called, I think is the patron saint of mothers, um, and and her story is equally fascinating to that of Augustine because she she really does pursue her son and really does pray for her son, and um, and and she's she, I'm, I'm going to butcher it, but she there's this famous quote where she says something like. Um, God is not going to forget the child of these tears or something to that effect. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm, I'm getting the quote wrong, but basically she's saying like, I have shed so many tears in prayer over my son that I believe God's going to honor that and call him to salvation. Hmm. And that's exactly what happens. Augustine lives a, a pretty uh, worldly, fleshly life right. for uh, his, you know, in, in his early adulthood um, in particular, and Shelley points this out, but Augustine also talks about this in his book, Confessions. He is, um, he sees one of his primary temptations in life as being lust and sexual temptation, and there is a period of time in his early adult years where... I mean, he is very much kind of following, um, following the world around, as it were. And he eventually comes to he, – he's from North Africa originally, but he eventually comes to the city of Milan where he comes into contact with the Bishop Ambrose. Right. 
And Ambrose has a significant impact on Augustine. Um, prior to his time in Milan, he had dabbled in this sort of pseudo-Christian sect known as Manichaeism. And the Manichaeans, uh, and Shelley talks about it a little bit, but the Manichaeans, um, it was kind of connected to Gnosticism, like we've talked about before, but the Manichaeans, what he said, what Shelley says is taught that the true spiritual Jesus had no material body and did not actually die. His purpose was to teach people the way out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And like the Gnostics, the Manichaeans held that much of the New Testament is true, but they rejected everything in it that seemed to suggest Christ's real sufferings, and they mm-hmm. discarded the Old Testament altogether. Yeah. And so they're, 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 you know, they're elements of like Gnosticism, they're elements of Stoicism in Manichaeism, of asceticism as well. I've got to kind of get rid of worldly pursuits. And those things appealed to Augustine because he saw kind of the emptiness of his pursuit of sex. Um, he fathers a child out of wedlock, right? Like yeah. he, he's 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 just he's created some problems for himself and for others through his pursuit of sin. And it's it's worth noting that he's not he's not an uneducated guy by this point either. Like it's yeah, he's Shelley points out that all this comes from a genuine search for truth, and he does that in other faiths. But he's it's like from the I think so yeah from his nineteenth year so. From just the his late teens, as he falls in love with Cicero as an as an mm-hmm. author and an orator, he searches for truth, and that eventually leads him to what being a professor mm-hmm. as he yep. as he moves to uh, what is it, is it Carthage? Yeah, well, he he goes to Carthage. He eventually makes his way to Rome. Then he goes to Milan. Right. Okay. Right. He he becomes a professor at. Uh, at Milan in 384. So, so we're still we're in the 300s still, right? Yeah. So this is the con- which means we've jumped back again a little bit. If, yeah. if you're following along through the book, these these periods, these categories by chapters are not necessarily linear. That's right. So we've jumped back once again because I think we just finished up around 455. That's right. As we were talking about, like the the councils of Chalcedon yeah. and Ephesus. Yeah. So, but we're we're still in this pre-medieval period. We're still before the year 500. Mm-hmm. Um, but where we're starting here in the story of Constantine, we're we're at the end of the 300s. So we've had the Council of Nicaea already. Um, we've had the whole Arian controversy already, and now we're getting to the end of the 300s with people like the Emperor Theodosius and the Council of Constantinople where the Nicene Creed is finally kind of finished, as it were. And and that's that's where, you know, it's that exact same time period where Augustine is, you know, pursuing sort of his young adult life in all of these different metropolitan areas. So he comes to Milan in 384. Uh, the Council of Constantinople was 381, I believe. So this is just right around the same time period, but but as of yet, he is not um, a believer in right. Christ. He is certainly so he's certainly not like uh, a clergyman in any way. He's not a priest, and certainly not a bishop yet. Um, and so he comes to Milan. He he comes under the teaching and preaching of the bishop of Milan, Ambrose. And if you remember, Ambrose is the guy who opposed the emperor Theodosius. 
Uh, a few chapters ago, we talked about the fact that Theodosius had killed all of these people in an arena mm-hmm. because they had helped a, uh, a, a chariot rider who had been accused of homosexuality. They helped him escape from prison so that he could ride in the big chariot race. Right. And because Theodosius was a Christian, in air quotes, and, right. right, he traps all these people in a, in a coliseum and has them all killed because of what they've done. And Ambrose effectively excommunicates him for a while. Right. Ambrose calls him to repent, and Ambrose yeah. basically says, if you don't do this, you will be kicked out of the church. Yeah. And Shelley, Shelley saw that as one of the first times that a bishop had sort of wielded that kind of power with, with an emperor. Right. So this is the same guy we're talking about here who was apparently quite a uh, charismatic preacher. Hmm. Um, and so Augustine comes under his preaching. Uh, Shelley says in Ambrose, he discovered that Christianity could be both eloquent and intelligent and that the troublesome stories in the Old Testament could be interpreted as allegories, yeah. which is, is interesting, right? Yeah. A lot of the early... Um, theologians interpreted a, a large part of the Old Testament in allegorical terms. Um, even if they believed that the text was describing a real event, they would still like try to find some sort of allegorical meaning in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're not even talking about um, stories that are incredibly supernatural, like you know Jonah and the whale, for yeah. example. It would be real easy to to interpret Jonah and the whale in an allegorical sense, but even a story like David and Goliath, right? Like early preachers would find ways to kind of extrapolate out um, David really represents such and such, and Goliath really represents such and such, and you know the stone that David throws represents such and such. Hmm. Um, there's your three-point sermon. Yeah, that has fallen out of fashion in today's world, right? Like largely, it it, it is not, it, especially in Protestant circles. Like it is not a way to um, interpret the Old Testament or the New Testament. But mm-hmm. it, it was very much something that was a part of life in the early church, especially in this period of time. And um, and also, so he comes under Ambrose's leadership, but but he also. I think is really moved by the example of asceticism, which is not surprising. That's probably something that drew him to Manichaeism as well. That was an element within that um, belief structure. Um, but he's especially moved by the, like the real ascetics, like the early guys, like St. Anthony, mm-hmm. the guys who went out into the desert, who lived in a cave, um, who were completely alone and who shunned all of the material things of this world. Yeah, and Shelley mentions that was one of Augustine's um, points that he saw these great spiritual victories in the lives of these other folks and wasn't experiencing any of that himself. Mm-hmm. And so even though under Manichaeism he had adopted some ascetic practices. Right. And so right. that kind of led him further, that alongside the teaching of Ambrose led him further to the truth in Christianity. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so he, he experiences a conversion, and he then um, goes, I mean, he's baptized, um, his son is baptized with him, he then goes back to North Africa. And things start going bad. Yeah, absolutely. His mother dies during the trip back to North Africa, 
Um, he Sin gets back. Lies. He's not a he's not a priest. Like he doesn't become a priest immediately. It's not until he comes back to North Africa. Um, that uh, three years after Shelley points out, it's, and he says by popular demand, but against Augustine's will, he's ordained as a priest. And I'm not sure how that happens, but <laughs> uh, um, but he's he's a popular figure pretty much immediately, and he is then chosen to be like assistant bishop at this North African city of Hippo, um, which was a major hub in Augustine's day, and then eventually he becomes the bishop of Hippo. And that is the position he holds until his death. And it is from that seat, if you will, that he writes all of his great works that he's remembered for today. Um, so uh, just like most of these other chapters that we've looked at, there are significant controversies that arise during, um, during Augustine's day, S- significant, you know, uh, either conflicts or controversy surrounding heretical thought. Mm-hmm. Um, the f- first one that Shelley mentions is what's known as the Donatist controversy. And and this one's interesting because if you guys remember, in the late 200s, you have the great persecution under the emperor Diocletian. Right. And I think we talked some about how, you know, 20, 30 years after that persecution, you have, after that ends you have the Council of Nicaea. So in a very short span of time, just a couple decades, uh, Christianity goes from being horribly persecuted to being legal in Rome and favored in Rome. And so even at the Council of Nicaea, you have these bishops who are showing up from various places, and some are missing limbs, some are missing eyes, like they are victims of persecution. Mm But if you recall, there was all of this emphasis on those who had faithfully endured persecution without uh, apostatizing, meaning without saying they didn't believe in Christ, and those, um, you know, so those who were faithful under persecution and confessed Christ, those who were unfaithful under persecution and uh, rejected Christ. And there are people who may have experienced persecution and who may have rejected Christ in some way, shape, or form, who continued to be bishops in the church. And uh, I think on some level there was forgiveness extended to them for the coercive situation that they were in. They were under duress, right? And yet the Donatist controversy centers around this one bishop named Donatus who felt like that was a complete denial of Christ to allow these guys to continue to be bishops. Mm -hmm. And a lot of this stems from his um, rejection of their validity. Yeah. So what Shelley says is Donatist charges centered on the fact that certain Catholic bishops had handed over the scriptures to be burned during the persecution under Diocletian. Um, so we're not even fully talking about, in all cases, a situation where it was like either, you know, say Jesus isn't Lord or we're, we'll kill you. But it's it's even something as simple as like turning over the artifacts and relics of the church to be burned yep. by the pagan Romans. And so he, they saw this as, as basically full apostasy. Mm-hmm. And we... 
I, I remember seeing the roots of some of this when we talked about our chapter on the, the great persecution mm. and the rise in penitence right. and the rise in, in, in the, the fracturing or a small fracture in the church between the minds that thought, no, there is no, there is no forgiveness for apostasy yeah. versus those who said, well, we can, we can judge for ourselves who is truly repentant. Mm-hmm. And so that just organically grows into having a camp like the Donatists who say, no, because of this, you, not only are you not supposed to be part of the church, but you were never the real church. And so really the authority is in us, in our sect. Yes. And, and the big question here is, what is, or maybe I should rephrase it, is there such a thing as a pure church? Or, Sure. Right. Right. Is it is it possible to have a church where there is not leadership that is false, leaders who claim Christ but who don't really follow Christ, leaders who claim Christ but they do so because it gains them power or money or whatever. Yeah. Is the is the question not essentially is it possible for us to have a church with no sin? Yeah, that's a, that's an element, but I think this this particularly pertains to leadership. Yeah, right. Is it possible for us to root out leaders who aren't legit? Mm. And Donatist basically said yes. And the starting place are these guys who we know handed over the scriptures to be burned by mm-hmm. the Romans. Um, Kick them out. Even though they may not have rejected Christ, in his right. view, just just giving over the scriptures to be burned was tantamount to rejecting Christ. And Augustine opposes that position. So what's, what Shelley says is, the Donatist argued that the validity of the sacrament depends on the moral standing of the minister. Yeah, here's so, the break. Right. So their, their thing is... For the priest or the bishop who is offering Holy Communion or baptism, that in order for those sacraments to be effective in the life of the believer, then that person has to be righteous. Yeah. Right? And if that bishop or priest is unrighteous and not a true believer, then the sacraments that they are offering are uh, kind of null and void. Right. To which... Augustine's response is, the sacrament's validity rests not in the minister, but in Christ. So the acts of the priest are not really the acts of the priest, but those of God. Yes. Yes, exactly. And part of his, like, backup for this is the, you know, the idea of the wheat and the tares mm-hmm. from, from Jesus. This idea that in, in any field, you've got the good grain, and then you've got basically the weeds. And, you know, in order to harvest the grain, you kind of have to pull up everything. Right. And that it's not... And, and you know, Shelley points out that Jesus isn't necessarily talking about the church there. He's talking about the whole world. And it relates some to, like, the parable of the sheep and the goats, where God, like, Christ is going to bring everybody before him, and then he will be the one who separates out mm-hmm. everybody. Some will be sheep, some will be goats, some will be wheat, some will be tares. Um, but Augustine applies this to the church and basically says, we can't know for sure. Like, we can't judge another man's heart. And so it's inevitable that we are going to have some wolves in sheep's clothing mm-hmm. within the church. And 
there may be instances where that is extremely clear and people are doing harm and we can take steps to remove them. And that certainly happens in the early church. Um, And then there are instances where, you know, we just need to kind of keep on keeping on recognizing that we can't, we can't somehow fully purify Mm -hmm. the church that, you know, at the end of the day, that's really God's work. Yeah. On, on this note, though, this was maybe one of the most interesting parts of this chapter for me was at the end of this Donatist controversy, mm. as the, the two sides come to a head, uh, Augustine's defense of the church against this controversy, Shelley says, also led to his support of the use of force in suppressing these rivals. So Augustine was was so strongly opposed to something like Donatism and this this belief that we can sniff out the false leaders and just go ahead and, and ban them on the spot. So opposed to that, that Augustine was willing to not only make use of, but but urge the government's use of force against mm-hmm. this kind of thing. So mm-hmm. suppressing his rival, which is not the first or the last time we'll see something like that in play. But that was, is, is this, and... I may be off base here. Is this kind of the the basis for like just war theory? Is this where Augustine comes up with that? Yeah, I think that's some of it here. And 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 man, I am not uh, I am not an expert on <laughs> Augustine's views related to this particular issue. So I, I I'm I'm not really in a position to talk about it at length. Um, I mean, there are there are scholars who've spent their entire lives studying Augustine only. Hmm. Um, because there is such a, a wealth of material that he has written, um, but but that does that does sort of come to be his position that when we're talking about the church, that there is such a thing as um, that that we can somehow justly um, suppress or push back against those who would seemingly oppose mm-hmm. the church. And in this particular case, it would be the Donatists, right, who are kind of disrupting and opposing the the church, as it were. Yeah. Um, now, Shelley points out that Augustine's views ultimately c- become the foundation of justification for things that happen. Um, he mentions the Inquisition. But I think it's also um, a foundation behind things that happened during the Crusades yeah. as well, that we are, um, if you remember the Crusades, and we'll get into those in, in another course, but the Crusades were largely concerned with retaking Jerusalem and the quote-unquote holy land from Muslim invaders. And so all kinds of things, all kinds of atrocities come to be justified under this same basic premise. Whether or not people are actually appealing to St. Augustine in their justification, it does become sort of something that's just in the water, that when it comes to the church, that we we are justified in kind of doing whatever we need to do to protect it. Yeah. And the problem is, I mean, it's the same thing with the issue with Theodosius that we talked about a minute ago, right? And the thing that Ambrose called him to repent of, like in Theodosius's mind, he was somehow defending 
the honor of Christ or something. That's right. And he appealed to these Christian principles in his defense of his actions. And yet Ambrose calls him out on it and calls him to repentance. Yeah. And so, but but the same the same idea continues to permeate and it becomes toxic because there is certainly a level where there I, I think there is a level where like as priests and bishops within the church, scripture would charge us in uh, protecting the sheep. Right. Right. There is a level of that that I think scripture commands and is acceptable. Then there is a level where we have ventured into the territory of sin through a lust for power, a lust for control, a desire to silence our enemies. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we have to be really careful there. Um, But yeah, it's a, it's a big issue. So, so that's, that's the first controversy that he is uh, uh, caught up in. The second one is called the Pelagian debate. And it has to do with the the nature of salvation mm-hmm. and sin. Yeah. Um, so Pelagius was a monk who, as Shelley says, denied that human sin is inherited from Adam. Um, in other words, we would call that the doctrine of original sin, mm-hmm. right? That because Adam and Eve sin sinned, uh, all subsequent human beings are born under this curse of sin, and that we, in a sense, are guilty for our own sin. We are not necessarily guilty because of Adam, but at the same time, we never had any other choice except to sin. So it is our own sin that sort of damns us, but, but our sin... And our inability to do good is the result of Adam's sin. Mm-hmm. And Pelagius says, no, 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 that's not the case. Everybody has a choice in life. Like everybody has the ability to not sin. It's just that most people choose not to. And there's the there's the big qualifier in Pelagius's uh, claim was the the use of most. Yeah. Because apparently he also claims that some people, aside from Jesus, have in fact lived without sin. Right. Yeah. There's the there's That's the big, a big issue, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah, so if you're saying that Jesus is not the only perfect human being to ever live and that somehow there are other perfect human beings, I mean, one, you're just deluded, right? right? Yeah. Um, but it also, that really blows up the world of Christology. What do we believe about Jesus? Mm-hmm. Um and so, if you know, you can just attain this level of self-control that that blots out sin entirely. Mm-hmm. One of the ways that Augustine responds to this, and I don't, I don't even think Shelley mentions this, but is is in his book Confessions, in which Augustine, I mean, Augustine's he he's very authentic and real in in that book. And um, in fact, I heard uh, I forget who now, but I I heard a oh it's um, oh gosh, there is a book I read last year. Um, called uh, On the Road with St. Augustine. Mm. And it basically is, um, it is like a, it's looking at the life and teaching of St. Augustine through a postmodern lens. And like, so postmodernity largely values uh, the idea of like realness and authenticity. That that you like genuineness. That that I am I am the most me that I can be. I am the realest me that I can be, 
and I'm not putting up some kind of facade. I'm not trying to alter myself to, to like please other people. Um, largely our culture values that as a concept. And, and so part of what the, the author, uh, is James K. A. Smith. That's who wrote it. James K. A. Smith, who is a Christian philosopher. Um, part of his point was that basically, uh, there are many, um, secular postmoderns in today's world who would possibly find a lot in common with Augustine. Like if they would just take the time to read Augustine, it's possible that they would find a lot of common ground and possibly see the gospel in, in, in the course of reading Augustine because he is so truly himself in his writing. Yeah. Um, but in response to the Pelagian controversy, Augustine basically goes back to his infancy and his childhood and begins to just point out like sin in his own life, even as like a very, very young child, like just, you know, and, and, you know, even for us, if you just go back to, I mean, I, I have five kids, like I, see even in my youngest children the the inability to get along and to do things like share and to treat each other lovingly and and those kinds of things right mm-hmm. um, we we all see that in our children and if we look back at our own childhood we can see and find the same things and that's one of one of Augustine's big kind of refutations of Pelagius is no 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 like my fallenness was on display even before a time that I really had the intellectual capacity to choose between right and wrong, yeah, right? When I was at a stage where I just did what I did because it's what seemed to be the right thing. At I'm willing the time. to bet Pelagius didn't have kids. <laughs> so, uh, listen, I, I mean, we could, I'm sure, talk forever about Augustine, um, and this chapter really only scratches the surface of his life. Um, I would I would highly recommend that you take the time to read Confessions first. Mm-hmm. Um, his other work, The City of God, is also really good. And um, Shelley provides a little bit of a context here at the very end of the chapter for why he wrote that book and what he was kind of getting at, because he's just seeing the, you know, just the decline of the Western Roman Empire, you mm-hmm. know, and he's seeing the just even though it is now Christian, quote unquote, it is just sliding so deeply into secularism as well, and it, it's being invaded by multiple people. And um, he writes the City of God, but I would start with Confessions, read that first, read the City of God afterwards, and you're going to get a good sense of who Augustine is and what he's all about. So um, he is foundational to Western Christianity. And a uh, really fascinating guy as well. And probably most fa- his most famous quote is probably um, from Confessions, which is that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Christ. Mm-hmm. And um, that he identifies this longing that we all have within us and that he felt like he tried to fill in all of these worldly ways by you know pursuing sex and materialism. Um, but that it was only when he found Christ that he really found rest yeah. from the things that his heart longed after. So there you go, Augustine. Um, let's stop here for today. I think we will continue to see some shadows of Augustine's teaching and thought in the chapters to come. But um, we'll stop there and we'll see you guys next time. 